On November 27th, in the year 1095, nearly 300 leaders of the Catholic Church gathered together to hear from their leader, the Pope Urban II, on some urgent matters that were going on in the church. I want to read to you a portion from Urban II's speech from that night. This is what he said. He said, your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help. For as the most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them. They have occupied more and more lands of those Christians. They have killed and captured many. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. I say this to those who are present. It is also meant for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. Less than a year later, Pope Urban II's speech that night would give rise to what would be called the Crusades. The Crusades were a series of battles that were fought by Christians against Muslims in the Middle East, all in an attempt to try to regain and recapture and to take possession of the Holy Land. Battle after battle, war after war, murder after murder happened during the Crusades. I want you to hear from an eyewitness of the Crusades, an actual Christian soldier that fought in one of those battles. This is what he said. He said, some of our men cut off the heads of their enemies. Others shot them with arrows so that they fell from the towers. Others tortured them longer by casting them into flames. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people killed during the Crusades. Senseless, unimaginable violence of every kind committed during those battles, all out of a desire to secure a holy land. And all of these horrific acts were committed by the church in the name of Christ. Also during that period, the Catholic Church instituted what would be called the Inquisitions. The church was beginning to grow, and so its influence was spreading into countries all over the place, as far out as France and Spain. And as that was beginning to happen, they were acknowledging that some, some of these people who were going out spreading this news were actually teaching false things about Christ. And so the leaders of the church decided that they needed to do something about it, that they needed to address it head on. So what they did was that they would go and hunt down these individuals who would be teaching these false things and figure out ways to punish them if they would not recant. The punishments ranged. Everything from lifelong imprisonment to banishment to even burning people alive at the stake. And in the end, thousands of people were tortured and killed by Christians in an attempt to uphold right doctrine. Torture and murder being committed by the church in the name of Christ. 
But you see, these atrocities weren't just committed by Christians who lived hundreds of years ago in foreign lands. Our own soil has seen its own fair share of injustice in recent history. Just decades ago, in the American South, some of the staunchest segregationists and racists in our country were church leaders. In the 50s and 60s, Baptist Christians would dress up in shirts and ties and suits in the morning, and then in the evening, dress down with white, shirt, white sheets with hoods on top of them in the night. Men who were preaching the gospel of love from the pulpit would also simultaneously be preaching a message of hate on the streets by evening. And it destroyed the lives of millions of African Americans in our country. And such hatred and injustice was but being done by Christians in the name of Christ. Or consider this. In the last three decades, the National Abortion Federation reported that there have been over 6,000 cases of violence being committed against abortion clinics and physicians in the US. Arsons and bombings, stabbing and shooting, and everything in between have been committed by those who identify themselves as pro-life supporters. And some of these perpetrators proudly wave the banner of their Christian faith as the motivation behind why they do what they do. They're convinced that they're just doing God's will. They're doing God's work on earth. Horrible, repulsive acts of violence committed by Christians in the name of Christ. And then there are the so-called prosperity preachers of late-night television. Men who have gone after the poorest of the poor in this country and around the world, promising help and wealth and prosperity to those who are in desperate situations coercing them to send in money to these preachers and to their ministries so that God would respond by curing them of their sicknesses, removing cancer, eliminating their debt, promising them big homes and fancy cars. They prey on vulnerable people, desperate people, people looking for relief. But in the end, no one prospers besides the preacher himself. Such deceit and corruption by men who do what they do in the name of Christ. These are just a few examples. I'm sure that we could go through and find many more, but I'm not sure that we need many more examples to make you feel embarrassed, maybe even make you feel disgusted by the church this morning. You see, we're currently in a series called Unbelievable, and so for eight weeks, we're taking a look at some of the common objections that people have when considering the Christian faith. Some of the things that make it difficult to believe in Jesus or to trust in the gospel of Christ. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at all sorts of things. All sorts of questions have been raised and considered. Things like, how can a loving God send people to hell? Or how can there only be one way to God through Jesus? Hard questions. Difficult questions. But you know what? Sometimes what makes Christianity so hard to believe isn't just what it teaches. Instead, the difficulty lies in what it has done. Whether it's the numerous examples like we just heard right now or our own personal encounters with Christians in everyday life, if we were to be honest, sometimes Christians themselves 
are the ones that make Christianity so hard to believe. A Christian author was once quoted as saying that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyles. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves this morning, the question that we're raising this morning is this. Isn't Christianity responsible for so much injustice in the world? And if it is, shouldn't it be rejected? Isn't Christianity responsible for so much injustice in this world? And if it is, shouldn't it be rejected? And so we're going to, we want to address this question in a few different ways. This morning, I want to spend a little bit of time trying to answer this question, humbly and honestly trying to consider some answer to this, answers to this question, considering the scriptures and what it has to say to us. But we know that a Sunday morning isn't going to be sufficient because we ourselves, as we sit here and listen, and even as we walk into this place, know that we, are, we have our own questions, our own points that we wrestle with as believers or unbelievers. And so we want to provide you with an opportunity to be able to wrestle with some of those questions as well. And so there's two ways that we're hoping to do that. One is that we've provided a number where you can text in questions. As you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing the sermon, you can send in questions that you have as you're hearing, things that maybe you're wrestling with. And our hope is that throughout the week, through our blog, to be able to respond to some of those questions and to be able to address them through our website. The other thing that we want to do is to be able to provide opportunities for dialogue, for conversations. And so our smaller communities, we call them GCMs, will be gathering together to have those conversations, to consider some of the things that we're talking about here on Sunday morning, and to dig deeper and to ask questions and to wrestle with doubt. We want to be able to provide you with that opportunity as well. And so if you're here and that sounds like something that you would like to do, please come and talk to me. I would love to be able to connect you with the group that's meeting in your area. But again, the question that we want to consider today is, isn't Christianity responsible for so much injustice in this world? And if it is, shouldn't it be rejected? Before we begin, let's seek the Lord's help together this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are so grateful that as we come this morning that you invite us to come that you invite us to come with our questions and with our doubt. And as we come before, the, before you this morning, we realize that it is right for us to come to you with our questions and our doubt because you are truth. As we sit here and seek for truth, there is no greater place for us to go to but to come to you. And so we ask and we pray, God, that you would indeed respond to our questions this morning that you would help us as we wrestle through things, that you would show us what is indeed true, and that in showing us that we would come to know and to believe and to understand, and that in that we would be transformed. All of those things require your help, and so we are asking you, would you please respond to us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isn't Christianity responsible for so much injustice in this world? If you were a skeptic, if you're a skeptic even sitting here this morning, you may be thinking that this is a good question for us to consider. 
but some skeptics would say that this isn't just a good question for us to consider because the response to it will help us determine whether or not Christianity is believable. They will say the answer to this question will actually, in fact, help us to understand something more important, whether or not Christianity is dangerous. The late Christopher Hitchens, one of the, the leading atheists of our time, he was quoted as saying this. He said, I'm not even an atheist so much as I am an anti-theist. I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influences of the church, of churches, and the effects of religious belief is positively harmful. Sam Harris, who is a, a scientist and an author, and as well as being an atheist, he said this. He said, Christians have abused, oppressed, enslaved, insulted, tormented, tortured, and killed people in the name of God for centuries on the basis of theologically defensible readings of the Bible. In other words, what Hitchens and Harris is saying is that the injustices caused by Christianity shouldn't just lead us to consider whether or not it should be rejected as being false. Instead, it actually should lead us to eliminate it as being dangerous. And so the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is, what's the response? How do we respond to such a, a claim? And so I want to present three thoughts this morning in trying to, uh, trying to address this objection. Three thoughts. The first thought is that Christians are guilty. Christians are guilty. The second thought is that Christianity isn't the problem. And then thirdly, that Christ is the only solution. Let's consider the first thought together. Christians are guilty. You know, I think the most honest thing that Christians can do is to agree that Christians have, in fact, been responsible for injustice in this world. To say otherwise would not only just be unhelpful, it would actually be untruthful for us. As we saw earlier, the, the examples are numerous. In the name of Christ, we have done all sorts of things, imprisonment, murder, racism, and bombings, all in the name of Jesus. I mean, sure, the details can be argued and, and qualifications can be made, but at the end of the day, we cannot deny that Christians have sadly been a vehicle of injustice and impression in the world. And I need you to hear this. We need to hear that this isn't just some uh, point in a sermon. You know, one of the dangers that we have when we try to do a series like this, when we try to preach through these things and, and have conversations about these things, is that we forget what we're talking about. These, this, this conversation, this thought, this objection that we're talking about this morning is referring to real people who have really faced injustice, who have really been hurt by Christians, people who have tragically lost fathers and mothers, people who have tragically lost children through violence, little children who have trusted spiritual leaders only to be abused by them physically and emotionally. I mean, even some of us sitting here this morning know what it looks like to be hurt by the church, to be abused and accused and harmed by the church. Some of us have been victims of sins committed by Christians. And so we need to hear this is far from just being some kind of theoretical conversation that we're having. This is real. This is real life because real people have been hurt through injustice. 
some of us, some of our forefathers who were called to be bearers of the gospel of redemption have instead brought destruction and pain into the world. Our actions and the actions of our people have led others to disbelieve, to reject, to even hate Christ. That should grieve us. That should cause us to weep. That should overwhelm our hearts with sorrow. Because listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, the point isn't to try to win an argument. We're not trying to win a debate here. Because ultimately, that would, that would amount to nothing. What would we have accomplished at the end of that day? Instead, our desire is that others would see the life-transforming beauty of Christ and his gospel. That's why we exist. And this morning, we are reminded, however, that Christians, little Christ, have sometimes been the greatest stumbling block to people trusting Jesus. And for that, we must repent. We must grieve. In a very real sense, in a very heartbreaking sense, we must admit that Christians are guilty. But you see, while that must be acknowledged, and, and it must be acknowledged, we must also say that Christianity isn't the problem. See, one of the early leaders of the church, a man named Augustine, is quoted as saying something like this. He said, don't judge a philosophy by its abuse, Instead, judge it by what it asserts. Don't judge a philosophy by its abuse. Instead, judge it by what it asserts. I think this is really helpful for us to consider as we're thinking through this objection together this morning. What is Augustine saying? He's saying that it would be too much for us to point to the abuse of a, of a philosophy or a system or a worldview as to the reason why it can't be believed or why it should be rejected. Instead, it needs to be judged based on what it fundamentally teaches or what it fundamentally believes. Because what we'll find is that abuse and injustice is found in every sector of society. There isn't a single sector of society that doesn't have its own examples of failure. It's everywhere. For instance, in 2012, the Department of Human Services reported that there were nearly 700,000 instances of children being victims of sexual abuse in the U.S. in just that year alone. 700,000 instances in just one year. But did you know that over 11% of those instances were actually committed by educators? Over 70,000 examples of educators abusing children physically. Teachers and counselors and assistants in private schools and public schools, we hear stories about them all the time. Men and women that we entrust our children to, to educate them, to, to mature them, to provide them with safety and understanding, instead commit horrendous crimes against them. But you see, it would be too much for us to say that that's why education is dangerous or that that's why education is poison or that's why education needs to be eliminated. That would just be saying too much. Instead, we condemn the acts of these men and women and we mourn over the pain that they have caused our children 
but we declare their actions to be an abuse of what it means to be a teacher, not an example of it. Or consider the city of Camden. The city of Camden has seen three different mayors being sent to prison over the last three decades. Three different mayors being sent to prison over the last three decades for corruption. These men are committed, have been convicted of doing all sorts of things, bribery and, and money laundering, fraud and mob connections and so on. The city of Camden continues to be in poverty today, in corruption today. It is continuously uh, considered one of the most dangerous cities in the nation today because largely of what these men have done. But do you know what? It would be too much for us to say that that's why government is dangerous. It would be too much for us to say that's why government is poison and that's why government needs to be eliminated because though we may have our own political affiliations and our own political opinions, the idea that the abuses of government eliminate or warrant its elimination is simply saying too much. Instead, what do we do? We condemn the acts of these men and we mourn over the destruction that it has caused to cities like Camden but we declare their actions to be an abuse of government, not the fruit of it. Bertrand Russell, a prominent atheist from several decades ago, he said this. He said, the most important thing about Christianity is not Christ, but the church. And if we are to judge Christianity, we must not go to the gospels for our material. Christ taught that you should give your goods to the poor, that you should not fight that you should not go to church. I'm not sure where he got that from, but that you should not go to church and that you should not pu punish adultery. Neither Catholics nor Protestants have shown any strong desire to follow his teaching in any of these respects. Consider such a text as, judge not lest ye be judged, and ask yourselves what influences such a text has had upon the Inquisition and the Ku Klux Klan. Now, Bertrand Russell is obviously a brilliant man. He was a, a mathematician. He was a philosopher. He was a historian. But I can't help but say that he is wrong on so many levels in this text. I mean, putting aside the, the fact that he attributes to Jesus teachings that he actually didn't teach, even if we put that aside, Russell also begins his assessment of Christianity with the wrong formula. You see, it would be incorrect for him to say that the most important Thing about Christianity is not Christ but the church. You see, the church is hugely important in Christianity. It really is. But Russell's logic is reversed. There's nothing more central to what we believe and how we ought to live in and as Christians than Christ himself. You see, just like we wouldn't say that the most important thing about science is the scientist, because when we do, then science could be potentially discounted by people like the German scientist Sigmund Rasker. Sigmund Rasker used Jewish men and women and children in concentration camps in World War II to conduct tests for hyperthermia. Hundreds of people died through his experiments, forced experiments, through the horrible things that he did. But to judge science based on the scientist that would be unfair, because we would all agree that Sigmund Rasker does not reflect the fundamental understanding 
or benefits of science. Instead, he was just an abuser. And in the same way, we must admit that Christianity can only be judged by the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus, not by the abuses of Christians. And so if that's true, the real question is, what does Christ's life and teaching actually look like? Now, there's all sorts of things that we can talk about when we uh, are considering the life and the work and the teaching of Jesus, but I want to consider a few this morning together. Like there was this instance, for example, when it was right around when Jesus was about to be crucified, where a crowd of Jewish leaders and soldiers were coming towards him, uh, ready to arrest him, to about to be uh, put onto trial. And as they come toward him, getting ready to arrest him, uh, Jesus is surrounded by his disciples. And so one of the disciples pulls out a sword, and he swings and cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. The disciples' intention was to take matters into his own hands, to try and defend Jesus, to honor him through the sword, to destroy anything that stands in the way of his Lord. So how does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, good thinking. He doesn't say, well done. He doesn't encourage the other disciples to do the same. Instead, he rebukes the disciple. Jesus reprimands him and says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And to those who committed the crusades and the inquisition, who claimed that they were simply trying to further the cause of Christ, simply trying to defend the Lord and destroy anything that stands in the way of their Lord, Jesus would say the same. He would say, put away your sword. He would show that such violence is to be a demonstration of disobedience, not what it looks like to follow Christ. Jesus neither taught nor approved the use of violence in the advancing of his kingdom. The Crusades and the Inquisition would be examples of abuse of Christ and his teaching, not the fruit of it. Well, let's consider one more example. There's another instance where Jesus is entering into a Jewish temple, and he walks in, and, he, and he's, as soon as he walks in, he sees a bunch of people set up there with tables, and they're trying to sell stuff, sell all sorts of things like oxen and sheep and pigeons. There were also money changers that were set up inside of the temple, set up shop, and Jesus sees this, and he's furious. He's furious, he's angry, he's overwhelmed by anger. Why? Because these merchants were trying to take advantage of those who were desiring to know God, those who were desiring to be obedient to him. You see, it was Passover, and so thousands and thousands of people would be coming to the temple to worship God through their sacrifices. And as the merchants saw this, they saw it as an opportunity to be able to get rich and get rich fast. They were preying on the needs of these people, and Jesus wasn't having any of it. And so what does he do? This is what it says. It says, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He made a whip of cords and drove them out. He dumped out their coins and he overturned their tables and he commanded them to leave because Jesus wasn't playing around. 
He had no patience for those who sought to profit off of vulnerable people. Instead, he rebukes them and confronts them head on. You see, in Jesus' ministry, there is no instance where he manipulates people, or he encourages others to manipulate people for personal gain. So it must be said that these self-seeking prosperity preachers would be an example of an abuse of Christ and his teaching, not the fruit of it. But now here's maybe the real question, right? The question that maybe we're really struggling with if you're sitting here this morning and you're skeptical. If all of these things about Jesus are true, then why is there such a disparity between Christ and Christians? Right? Why is there such a discrepancy between Jesus and his followers? Because all of this doesn't negate the fact that Christians have still been responsible for injustice and wrongdoing in the world. And listen, we're not even just talking about prosperity preachers or those who did the crusades. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, you know that, that your own life has failed to reflect fully who Jesus is through the th way that you have lived. Through the things that we have said or left unsaid, through the things that we have done or left undone, even our own lives show that there is a gap that exists between who Jesus is and who we are. So the question is, what do we do with that? What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that Christianity is poison. And what it doesn't mean is that Christianity needs to be eliminated. Because as we have said, every sector of society has produced, produced its fair share of abuse. Instead, when we examine this, what we will notice is the common factor among all of these examples of injustice in every sector of society is one thing. It's us. It's humanity. We're the ones who destroy and abuse everything. Christianity isn't the problem. Humanity is. You see, every sector has in some form or fashion served as a vehicle for injustice in this world. Every single one, right? Whether we're talking about sports and PEDs or business and corruption, every single one has been a source of abuse. So what do these sectors do with the examples of injustice that they see in their own, in their own fields? How do they respond? The best that each one of these sectors can do is to send people to prison or to create new policies or to make up new procedures to try to fix what's going on. And it does fix things temporarily. It may take care of a particular person or a particular circumstance, but we've seen it time and time again. The core of the problem never really changes because if it's not one person, it's the other. And that's because that the best that prisons and policies and procedures can do is curb our behavior, right? So prison can keep us in isolation so that we have no contact with other people and so we don't hurt people any longer. Policies can show us consequences so that maybe we think twice before doing something, but none of it deals with the core of our being. None of it deals with our desires. None of it touches our heart. It's like putting a, a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, right? The best the Band-Aid could do is maybe slow down the bleeding for a little while, but it doesn't negate the fact that we're still dying inside. Jesus actually shows us that it's not our behavior that's the problem, it's our heart. He says this in Matthew chapter 15, 
19 and 20. It says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, do you want to know why leaders commit genocide? It's because their hearts are sinful. Do you want to know why preachers go after the poorest of the poor? It's because their hearts are sinful. Do you want to know why some politicians corrupt the government? It's because their hearts are sinful. And so then, do you want to know how to deal with injustice? You have to deal with the heart. You have to deal with sin because it's out of the heart that our actions flow. We do what we do because we believe what we believe. And you see, prisons and policies and procedures can change behavior, but they can do nothing about our heart. And that's why Christ is our only solution. Christ is the only solution. You see, the solution to injustice isn't found in moving further away from Christ. It's actually found in pressing further into him. Because when we do, we'll find that there is no other solution for our sin apart from Christ. In Jesus, we find a Savior who's not only familiar with injustice, but one who has come to abolish injustice. And we'll, in fact, we'll find out that the cross demonstrates the greatest example of injustice as well as our greatest solution for injustice. Listen to what one pastor has to say about the injustice of the cross. He says this, Consider the facts. Jesus Christ was the only truly sinless individual who ever lived. The most innocent, blameless, virtuous man of all time. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And yet the torment and punishment he suffered in his death was infinitely more heinous than anyone else has ever suffered. He bore the full weight of retribution for human evil. He suffered as if he were guilty of humanity's worst offenses, and yet he was guilty of nothing. We need to hear that. No one is more familiar with injustice in this world than Jesus himself. We need to allow that to sort of soak in for a moment to consider what it is saying. You see, the God and the Savior of this universe isn't just simply looking out into this world, witnessing the forms of injustice that's happening and standing there indifferent to what he sees. Instead, he enters into our world. He becomes the recipient of injustice. Injustice infinitely greater than anything that the world has seen. He unjustly bears the wrath, punishment, and suffering of the cross so that the real sinners of the world, you and I, can be redeemed and forgiven. You see, God didn't look at the injustice of our sin and decide that we need to be eliminated or rejected. Instead, God responds to our injustice by sending his son to unjustly die on the cross for the unjust. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel, but there's more. When we believe and trust in that good news, what the Bible says is that something amazing begins to happen. 
You see, we're not simply forgiven of the injustice occurred and, and contributed by our hand. We actually have something even more greater happening. We actually begin to look more like our Savior. You see, the problem with injustice caused by Christians isn't that we look too much like our Savior. Instead, it's that we don't look like him enough. And so when we believe and trust in this good news, God begins to transform us so that we do look more like his son. And he does so by giving us a brand new heart. We just said that the root and the cause of injustice in this world is the heart. Out of the heart comes sin and injustice that we see. And so God, how does he solve that problem? He gives us a brand new heart. And not only does he give us a brand new heart, he makes his dwelling in that heart. That same heart that was the, the cause of injustice and sin in this world is now made brand new, and the presence of God himself is found in our heart. And as he lives in us, he begins to act through us. And so when we witness injustice in this world, we don't just stand off in a distance, indifferent to what we see. Instead, we enter into injustice, identify ourselves with the victims of injustice, and to work hard to abolish injustice in this world, because that's what Jesus did for us. It's what leads us to go to cities like Mumbai and try to fight sex trafficking, to pick up some of us and move to those cities, to have compassion on the women and the children of those cities, to end slavery, because that's what Jesus did for us. It's what leads our Bucks County community group to serve the children of Christ's home, to care for orphans and widows, to become a father to the fatherless, to show hope in the midst of pain and suffering, because that's what Christ did for us. It's what leads you, many of you, to be so generous with your wealth giving away your money for the sake of those who are in need, suffering loss so that through your sacrifice, others might become rich. Because it's what Jesus has done for us. You see, when Christians are guilty of causing injustice, it's not because they're being too much like Jesus. It's because they're not being enough like Jesus. And so thankfully, Jesus transforms us, changing our hearts of sin into a heart that reflects his own heart. And so the, the question that we need to be asking ourselves even this morning is, are you in need of a new heart? Day by day, as you see injustice in this world, do you find yourself indifferent? Is your life even a cause of injustice in this world? Is the extent of conversation, is the extent of engagement into injustice, sermons and conversations? If it is, God is saying, I'm here to give you a brand new heart, to transform your life, to remove injustice from the world. And here's our greatest hope, that the cross guarantees that injustice will indeed be abolished. There will come to an end. There will come an end to the injustices that we see in this world. 
Because, because Jesus died and because he resurrected, we know that he has defeated sin. And because he has defeated sin, we know that his victory assures us that what he has begun on the cross and through us, he will surely bring to an end. Listen to Revelation 21, 3 to 5. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will bring an end to the injustice that we see in this world. There will come a day when we will no longer mourn over our sin. We will no longer mourn over the sins of others. There will come a day when there will no longer be death and suffering. People won't be living in trials any longer. Because Jesus died and rose again, we can be sure that the former things are passing away and that he will indeed make all things new. You see, the, the, church, the church has indeed been responsible for injustice in the world. But that doesn't push us further away from Christ. Instead, it leads us to move closer in. Because if we truly care for injustice, the only solution for injustice is found in Jesus, who came to abolish it on the cross. Let's pray.